Well, let's thank them again. Thank you. Wow, I think we've got some up-and-coming drummers and guitar players here, right? Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty wild, pretty into it. They're good. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for parents and others who helped make that possible as well. Um, it's really appropriate in Palm Sunday uh, to see kids with palms. And you always kind of wonder with all that we've been going through with COVID, could we do this? Can we do this? How do we want to do this? And so I'm grateful that we were able to do this as we did. Um, and it's also, I think, interesting because today, uh, as we look at this message uh, on Palm Sunday, we're, we're talking about spiritual growth. And one of the ways to look at Palm Sunday is that much of what you see on that Palm Sunday is evidence of a, a lot of spiritual immaturity uh, in the nation Israel, as well even as in the disciples. Uh, the nation of Israel, the people's desires as well as the disciples, they wanted a king. I mean, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the one who came and comes in the name of the Lord. And, and we spiritualized the word Hosanna, which means save us. It would be like um, victory. We're going we're gonna to win this one. Uh, we are going to, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, because we are going to see in this one who is called the Messiah, uh, a release from the oppression of Rome. And this political kingdom is going to change hands. And, and God looks at their hearts and says it's not about the changing of the circumstances politically in, in any other way. What's needed here is a savior. That will change your heart, which will have the ability to change some of those circumstances. And you can just note how the people's fickleness is. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, they are throwing down their cloaks and they're throwing down their palm branches and they're crying out, make him king. And another mark of immaturity is how quickly that changes within a few days to crucify him. In fact, the disciples aren't a whole lot better when it comes to when you look at their spiritual development. They're at the Last Supper, and Jesus is sharing what's going to happen. And they're beginning to proclaim the fact that, no, Jesus, you're the best, man. We, we will follow you anywhere. We will do anything for you. And then not too many hours later, it's Jesus who? I, I, Jesus, but who are you talking about? And you see this lack of maturity and this lack of understanding, this lack of self-awareness. I've um, read recently probably one of the better and maybe I would say one of the best sports autobiography that I've read in a while by um, Andre Agassi. It's called Open. Some of you may have read it. But it's just his journey. And his journey is all about growing up. I'm not claiming this is some kind of Christian autobiography, but you know I'm glad God keeps score of the hearts and, and that we don't. But he makes some interesting statements in here as he talks about his favorite film is Shadowland, which is by about the author 
the British author C.S. Lewis, and, and he talks about how often um, the things that he's kind of learned from him, he says at one point um, with his father coming out of an abusive, oppressive relationship with his dad, so all his life he's kind of been rebellious, wound, wounded from those years, and, and his own upbringing being brought into a, another kind of academy at a young age to play tennis, and he was doing all this because his dad wanted to, and he hated tennis, and at one point his dad's ill in the hospital, and he says, I had this overwhelming feeling and urge to forgive because I realized my father can't help himself, that he never could help himself any more than he could understand himself. My father is what he is and always will be, and though he can't help himself, though he can't tell the difference between loving me and loving tennis, it's all of the same. And then he makes a statement, few of us are granted the grace to know ourselves And until we do, maybe the best we can do is be consistent. My father is nothing but consistent in the way he approached things. And later makes the statement as he meets with another guy who he had met was a pastor. And he, and he, he makes the statement that God wants us to grow up. And as we look at Palm Sunday and we look at our own hearts, I want us to talk about what it means for us to grow up. What does it look like? Where are you at in the stages of your own development in your relationship with God, in relationship with yourself and others? As you look at this passage of scripture we're going to look at today, we're looking at Acts chapter 9. And in, in chapter 9, uh, Bruce did an incredibly great job last week as he spoke about the conversion of this man named Saul who was persecuting the church. And you'll see that in chapter 9, up to about the first half of verse 19, Saul has this conversion experience. And then from that point, verses 19, the last part of 19, through about verse 31, what you see is a compression of about three to five years. But if you include verse 30 in the time that Saul is away in Tarsus, It's actually 18 to 20 years. So in this passage of scripture, he's kind of condensing the the life of Paul till Paul shows up again in Acts 13. Now, I'm going to steal, or maybe better borrow, uh, an outline from Chuck Swindoll on these verses in the stages of growth, because I think they make just such perfect sense. And he talks about 9, 1 through 19 as being the new birth, his conversion. He talks about stage 1 as being verses 9, 23, uh, chapter 9, 23 through 25. Stage 2, 26 to 31. Stage 3 is chapter uh, 13 and verse 9, which at that point, he's still called Saul, but he's then a little bit into that, given a new name by Luke, but ultimately by God. Because at that point, he has grown to a place where his character has been formed by Christ. Some 20 years of time. And that's what we're going to look at. So the first thing I want us to do is just to recognize that you are on a spiritual journey. And my guess is you could be at one of these stages. And in fact, you may find yourself reverting back to one of these stages, being at stage three, reverting back to stage one. It's it's possible. We are arrested in our development, if you want to put it that way, with regard to our own spiritual growth. And so here's the first stage. Verses 19 through 22. Stage one is what um, is titled, This is Easy. Spiritual growth is easy. If you look at these verses, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately, 
He began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? And they asked, and why did he come here to arrest them and take them into chains to the leading priests? And then Saul's preaching becomes more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs. So keep that in mind. More and more powerful. And they couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. There isn't a stage one, this idea that it's easy. As you look at the life of Paul, it seems to be easy. He gets it. His, the light's turned on. He's awakened. There's a new birth within him. And, and right away it goes, wow, this whole thing about Jesus is right. But there are some traps in this very first stage that you see in these verses. And here's what I want you to watch for. And you may have yourself experienced, and you may actually go back at times and experience this. In stage one, this is easy part. You, you kind of begin by saying, God, I will show you how much I love you. It's the trap of performance. It's the very first thing you see. Uh, one translation uses that word. It says here, immediately he began preaching. One translation puts it this way. After Paul's sight was restored, within the hour, he gets out there and he's excited to show Jesus, who has captured his being, just how much he loves him. He goes from persecuting to preaching within an hour. And what's changed is now he's following Jesus rather than pursuing Jesus and persecuting people. Now he's following Jesus and preaching about Jesus, but it's still all performance-based in many ways. It's all about, I'm going to show you, Jesus, just how much I love you. And what I did in persecution, now I will do in preaching to others about it. And and what happens in our life in this first stage when we kind of go, this is easy. We don't really understand this concept of grace. And the tendency of every new believer, and the tendency of many of us, is to revert back to this performance sense of Jesus. I'll prove to you how much I love you. After years of living with guilt, possibly, or trying to measure up and to earn God's love, also at some point you have this revelation, this understanding, whether it's at a camp experience or you have this experience while you're walking and God gets a hold of your heart and you understand this love that God has for you through Jesus and you begin to understand this sense where he says, my child, rest. I have done through the death of Jesus what you could never have done for yourself throughout all eternity. Just receive my love. It's not based on anything. In fact, I even look at your sin and I've removed it for you. And yet what happens is immediately, within the hour, he starts to perform. I just ask you to think about that. Are you find, do you find yourself in that trap where you kind of go, thanks God for this gift. This is fantastic. I know you love me. Now I'm going to prove to you how much I love you. And I'm going to somehow earn it again. There's another trap. It's what I call the trap of natural abilities. It's, it's not this, I will um, prove to you how much I love you. It's now I will make a difference for you. You just watch me. With the gifts you've given me, I'm going to change hearts and lives and people. I'm going to go out and love people. I'm going to, I'm going to bring your kingdom to places where I work. One translation says it in verse 22. That Saul's power increased greatly. 
and he became more and more proficient in proving Jesus was the anointed one. What I find interesting here is it reminds me of when I was in seminary. There was a guy who was really, really bright. I won't use his name, but I saw him in a debate, in, in, in an apologetics debate. On, he was on a TV show, and he just killed the other guy. He won the battle, but he lost the war. Everybody in the audience was against him. Because even though he out-debated him and proved what was true, he lost everybody's heart. It's really amazing, this idea, as Paul comes out there, he's, he's in his own strength. He is, Saul was one of the most amazingly gifted, naturally gifted men that's ever lived. He had a great intellect, so much so that he lived in this hometown of Tarsus. And in Tarsus, um, what would happen in these outlying cities that are not in um, Jerusalem or in Israel, but in, this was in Turkey, his hometown Tarsus was a lot of Jews. The outstanding student would kind of get the scholarship to get to go to Jerusalem at a very young age, and they would be able to sit at the feet of one of the wise, wise Jewish rabbis, and one of them was a man named Gamaliel, and Saul was so gifted that at a very young age, he received the scholarship, and he went and sat at the feet of Gamaliel as a disciple. Not only is this gifted intellect, he was a gifted debater. If you read in Acts, he goes to Athens, and he debates with the best philosophers within Athens, which was the center of philosophy, the center where you would go on that hill and debate. He was a passionate speaker. You had no problem understanding what Saul really believed and what he was passionate about. And Saul thought, like we kind of do, that in this stage of spiritual development and when we come to faith in Christ, all I need to do is use my natural abilities and I will make a spiritual impact. And it took Saul, not just these three to five years that you see in this passage, but verse 30, these 18 to 20 years for him to come to a place when he would be able to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the, the man who is unspiritual doesn't receive what is spiritual, but is, is spiritually discerned. And he becomes to realize that this is not about how gifted I am. These are great things. I can use them for God. But it's far more about am I in his presence and living out of his spirit so that his spirit is the one that's impacting people's hearts. And then there's what I call exhilarating joy. So the trap of performance, I, I will prove to you how much I love you, God. You may be in that place and you may fall back to that place or, or I'm going to use my natural gifts in such a way that I'm going to make a spiritual impact when you recognize eventually, no, it's really in a spiritual way that God does the impact of your natural gifts. And then you come to this place, what I call the trap of exhilarating joy, which is, uh, I'm never going to struggle again. You ever been in that? Man, this is incredible, especially new believers. This is so cool. Here's where, where new believers really get fooled. Because in those first year, years, and God removes their sin and their guilt and their shame, and they're just on cloud nine. And, and God is so wonderful that in those, in those times, he begins to start doing other things. Sometimes he, he provides a job that you were hoping for, or you're, you're maybe single, and that person that you just really wanted to spend your heart and your life with shows up in your life. God is doing amazing things. I will never struggle again. This is incredible. This is so easy. 
Reminds me of the first years of a parent with a newborn being a grandfather. I get to watch a lot of that with my kids these days. And, uh, you know, these newborns, you know, parents, they hold them, they feed them, they change them, they bathe them, they do everything for them. They are so wrapped in his, in their love and their care, the way that I think God does that often for us at times in our life. And then one day, the parent decides to um, drop their kid off at a nursery or a daycare, right? Or even at grandpa and grandma's. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, where are you? And it's just part of growth. It's, it's part of recognizing that, you know what, I'll be okay when I don't see you all the time. And that's part of spiritual growth. So stage one, is this is easy. Some of you may revert back to that. You may understand that, that sense of exhilarating joy. You may understand right now in your own life, because it's not just something that happens to newborns. It happens to me. It happens to people at different stages of their life. When you move to a place of fear and you find this separation anxiety, you say, God, these circumstances stink. I thought you were going to care about me. Where are you? And God goes, I, I'm, not, I'm not raising infants to be infants. I'm raising infants to be children who will eventually become adults. There's a second stage, and this is a stage I call from, um, you know, this is easy to, this is tough. <laughs> you kind of go, okay, this is a lot tougher maybe than I thought it would be. Look at verse 23 through verse 25. And again, you got to kind of note the first few words here. After a while, which could easily be translated as time passed. So we're seeing time pass. This is probably about three years into it. Saul has done a whole bunch of stuff. Right? In fact, if I could, if I was teaching and I had a lot of time to do this, I could actually show you the three to five years that Saul. He probably goes from Damascus. He goes down to Mount Sinai. Feeling like he's another Moses and, and, and feeling like God has put this kind of call on his life. He comes back there. He's living there. Now he goes down. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. This moves from what I call easy peasy to really rough and tough. Right? Everything's been really good for a bit, now after a while. And you gotta put yourself in, in, in Saul's shoes, or maybe his sandals, right? Here is, here is Saul. We're told in verses 15 and 16 in chapter 9, there's a guy named Ananias that God calls and gives this vision to, and Jesus speaks to him and tells him about this guy Saul. Everybody's afraid of him, but he wants Ananias to meet with Saul. Now can you imagine being Ananias? Well, he's given a charge from God. Here's what he says in verses 15 and 16. Ananias tells, um, is to go to Saul and tell him what the Lord told him. And, and this is what the Lord told Ananias. He said, here's why I want you to go, because Saul's a big deal. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's specially chosen by me. I have great plans for him. He, here's what he says. He will stand before kings and go to nations. And he will even go back to his own people, the Jews, and share with them about me Jesus. Now remember, you're Saul. You're listening to this. You're understanding that God, Jesus, who had spoken to you, you had this conversion experience with him, so you understand that Jesus speaks to people. He speaks to this guy, Ananias, and Ananias gives him some incredible things. He says, guess what? Saul, this is what Jesus told me. You're a big deal. 
You are specially chosen. You know what? Your ambition hasn't been off. You will stand before kings. You will march up the ladder. You will actually even go back to your own people. You're not just the hero from Tarsus. You're going to be the hero of all the Jews because you're going to go back and tell them. And remember, you're Saul, and this is what you hear because you missed the last line. Right? You missed the last line. You're so caught up with the first few lines. Because Ananias ends at the end adds these few words. I will show him, this is Jesus, I will show Saul how much he has to suffer for my name. Wait a second. Who said this? Would, what? And I'm guessing Saul's quite human. He, you know, he's hearing glory, 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 kings and nations, speaking to many people. I get to tell him about the Messiah, and he misses the part of the suffering. And here's what he experiences, and here's what you experience in stage two when it's tough. One of the things you experience is is frustration, and you may be in this place right now, frustration. Because God has given you a vision of what will be. You have before him, maybe through reading his word or through someone who has spoken to you, or, or in some way God has shared a bit of the destiny that you have for him. But instead of glory, you've experienced pain and you've seen suffering and you haven't moved to where you thought you would move and you're frustrated. At first, your friends and family seem interested, right? You know, and, and as time passes, as time goes after a while, so to speak, their Minnesota nice turns to what I call Minnesota cold. It's moved from frigid, now it's freezing. And, and you have come to this place, like Saul, and things were really easy for a while, but now friends and family, they don't seem to get what you have found. You want them to know, and just like Saul, you tell them how incredible Jesus is, and they look at you, and they think you've come from Mars. You're passionate about Jesus, and they don't get it. And it's frustrating. You have coworkers, and they wonder about you because at first they're going, okay, well, look at this. And eventually they're kind of going like, he's just been on Zoom too many hours. And like Saul, you're frustrated. Those who you would expect get it, don't. Those who you think you would have credibility with now look at you incredulously like, what's happened to you? And now this experience of walking with Jesus begins to feel a bit tough. You're frustrated. But that's not as tough as the next thing that begins to occur. And you begin to start feeling rejection. Paul's friends and his co-workers, it says, plot the ultimate rejection. They're going to kill him. They're going to do what Saul was trying to do. If we can just stop his speaking, if we can just get rid of him and get rid of the message, you know, we'll get rid of the messenger, right? And it's not only the pain here of being dismissed, but there's a greater pain of what I would call being disowned. You no longer get the invite to the weekend with your friends playing golf. You move to a place where the promotion you thought you were going to get just isn't there for some reason. Or you hear about the family who they got together and you weren't with them. I mean, it's those kind of things where you begin to feel rejection. 
And you move from being dismissed to disowned to what I call being almost dismembered. They don't want you a part of them. And the Christian life, which is so easy, is now tough. And what you don't know, and which is maybe good that you don't know, is the next, in the next stage of this is even worse. It moves from easy to tough to what I would call impossible. Acts 9, verses 26 through 31. This is impossible. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. And he told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. And when the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. And the church then had peace throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. What I find in this stage, and if you find yourself in this, is you have to experience the impossibility of following Jesus in your own wisdom and in your own strength before God can make possible his impossible works through you. I put it this way, and and I've asked it to be on the screen. You must come to the end of your own strength. Only then does the strength of God flow through you. This is what is character forming. This is what it took 18 to 20 years to truly form in Saul. It is an important stage. And often God has to take you there. And you may be in his hands there right now. Sometimes God even helps you get to this place. A.W. Tozer once wrote, It is doubtful whether God can bless a, a person greatly until he has hurt that person deeply. And you kind of go, what? There's a Bible teacher, an old Bible teacher, Alan Redpath said something similar. He said, God, God, when he wants to do an impossible task, he takes on an impossible man and woman and crushes him or her. Now, I just want to say this. This is not to suggest that God delights in hurting people. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Pain is is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And then one day he said to his students, the blows of God's chisel, which hurts us so much, are what makes us perfect. It's what brings our character and our maturity. maturity. So that James would say, count it all joy. Consider what you're experiencing, joy as the chisel on your life. Sometimes... Surgery and recovery is very painful, right? We know that if, if, if a doctor looks at a person and says, you know what, if we don't remove that tumor, if we don't operate on that joint, it won't be able to function. If, if we don't remove that tumor, it, it's going to spread elsewhere. And that's not a pleasant thing, and recovery of it can also be very painful, There are times in our own spiritual stages that God says, you know what, I have to deal with this. And when you look at the life of Saul, Saul in a sense, for Saul, his strong will and his limiting pride needed to be removed. 
And folks, it took 18 to 20 years for God to get a guy named Saul, who was incredibly gifted, who you would think unleash him into the world, for God to move him to a place where he could use him and begin to guide him into the things that he had said he wanted to do for him, but he knew it would come with suffering. And we so often paint this picture of the Christian life, and it's not inaccurate. This is easy. This is really, all you got to do is trust and obey, and, and, and you'll find that's the only way that you'll find God coming around you and doing this. And that's really true. He takes newborns. He takes us at times in our life and he, he gives us those times when we're moving into something new and he helps make it easy. And then all of a sudden you go, what, well, where are you now, God? And you're going, cause I need you now to trust in my goodness when the circumstances around you don't seem so good. And I'm doing something in your heart. I'm strengthening muscles of faith that could never be strengthened. If you're going to be where I want you to be, and become the kind of person that you're destined to become. And so, in this phase, and I, I love this, it's probably the most humorous part of this whole chapter, verses 29 through 31. Because in verses 29 through 31, um, Paul is talking and debating with these Jews, and they're trying to kill him. Because he's, he's out logicking, out philosophizing them everything. He's out scripturalizing them, you name it. And then it says the believers learn of this and they take him to Caesarea. Remember that's where Philip was? And they say to Saul, we're sending you back to Tarsus. Because the disruption and turmoil that was taking place in the church at that point was happening through this immature person named Saul. And I love what it says. The church then, after he sent away, had peace. It's, you got to read it. It's, it's rather funny. The apostles are going, if we could just get rid of Saul, we don't want to kill him, but if we just send him away, and God is saying, yes, send him away. There's a work I need to do with him. Because later on, you see that Saul becomes Paul. So here, I'm going to ask the team to come forward. I want to share with you three things that um, to kind of close with that I think are important lessons in these, in these stages of spiritual um, immaturity to maturity. In the, in the very first thing I, I want to share with you is this. It's lesson um, one in this whole, in this whole um, area of, of growing in maturity is rest. Do you know that God is not in a hurry to grow you up? You think about it. He's a good, good father. He knows growth takes time. And so he's saying, you know, seek me, know me, love me begin to experience my grace, walk with me, and I will grow you up. Paul at one point realized that because he had a bunch of Philippians from the city of Philippi who at one point he says to him, you know, the God who began a good work in you, he will do what? He will complete it. And you just need to live in that. And also if you're in a hurry to get where God maybe you sense has called you, um, you got to recognize that God isn't in a hurry there either. He will get you to where he wants you to be in his time. Because where he wants you to be is usually a result of what you become. And the second lesson in this is surrender. And, and surrender, we think of so often, is a, a step in the journey. It isn't. It is the journey. It is a life of surrender. 
It is a surrender that is not done with bitterness or self-pity or resentment or it's not with a sense of entitlement. It's that. It's daily. It's sometimes hour by hour. Sometimes it's just the heart saying, I'm yours, God. This life is yours, Jesus. My time, my money, my family, my friends, my work, my goals, my hopes, my dreams, they're yours. I surrender all of them to you. And the last is blessing. Acts 13, some 20 years later, Luke begins to call Saul Paul. And God is really the one who, who, who says, I have formed my character of Christ in you, and now I call you Paul. Saul means seeking after. It was pursuing. And Saul's entire life was to perform to be good enough to earn God's love and favor. And that was his name. He sought after God like no other Jew of his day. And he gets named Paul. You know what Paul means? Little one. It just means little one. And, and Paul gets names this. And his name describes exactly what happens to Saul's life over time. This Saul who sought God and his greatness moving up the ladder is now content to be insignificant, to suffer, and to do whatever would make Jesus big in the eyes of others. It's that point when you consciously say, I will no longer live by my flesh, I will no longer live by the strategies I learned to survive by when I was a child. I will no longer live by my own wisdom and strength. I will humble myself and surrender myself to you, Jesus. I will rest in your grace, in your goodness, and I will grow up in you. So I want you just to contemplate as we sing this song, because God wants to bless you.